Abdul has a question for you, but he's on listen-only mode. Did he want to ask his own question, or shall I ask it? I can go ahead. Okay, very good. All right. Do you hear me, Tom? I do. Awesome. How are you, Tom? I'm fine. How are you, Abdul? All right. Thank you. Um, So I just had two questions. One of them is, I know you said that we can't know what's outside consciousness because we are consciousness, uh, but I was wondering, does the whole know what is outside it? Have you ever asked the larger consciousness system what exists outside of it? That is question number one. Question number two. Now, I've heard you say in the past that we tend to be born in the, on the same planet, but do we tend to be born in the same countries or the same cultures? Like us in the West, do we tend to be born again in Western countries or could we expect to be in China or India or something in our next lifetimes? Thank you. Okay. Well, let me do the second first. We tend to gravitate or want to take on a, 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 the next experience packet that is going to offer us the best chance of success. Something that is challenging, but not too challenging. You know, something that's just right. So if we're working on things that are, oh, let's say, uh, you know, typical example, anger management. If you're working on that, then you may not want to change cultures because that would throw in a whole new set of, of learning that would have to take place. You'd have a whole new learning curve in a different culture. So you have a culture that you have some experience with might just be a little easier to deal with. But on the other hand, we come back with, um, you know, just without the intellectual part, but we have some, some things that come with us in our, in our um, instincts. And even some of our, our cultural uh, understanding can come with us in our instincts. So there may be a reason to stay with the same culture, or there may be a good reason to change cultures. Change gives us new opportunities. If we keep doing the same thing, we get kind of locked into the same answers. Doing things that are different, doing things that make us see things in a different way are very good for us. So there is great power in diversity. The fact that we are sometimes male, sometimes female, you know, sometimes poor, sometimes rich. Yes, sometimes Asian, sometimes, um, you know, not. Different races. All of that is very valuable because it gives us a much richer set of experience from which to grow from. If we're always doing the same thing over and over again, then we're not going to grow as quickly. Because we're not going to have the array of challenges we would have otherwise. So I'd say in most cases, people tend to move around through different sets of circumstances just because that's more growing. But for special purposes where uh, one wanted to repeat something, maybe they did but didn't do well, and they want to give it another shot, well, then they might want to set up a very similar condition next time. So it could be either way. But mostly I think diversity is is sought after because you grow faster that way. Okay, what was the first question then? So the first question was regarding what what is outside of consciousness. Now we oh, as a yeah. yeah. Okay. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Um does the system know what's outside of itself? Well, I don't know whether it does or not. And the other thing that goes with that is, you know, have I asked? Well, I have sort of asked, but I know the system well enough to know that if the answer is not on my growth path, I won't get an answer. You don't always get an answer just because you ask a question. If that question being answered is something that helps you grow, then you often will get it if they haven't, if the answer is available. You know, if you can think of this, this consciousness system just existing as an awareness of it could be, it could be in state one or state two. That, that's kind of the simplest, um, model of consciousness. And that's all it could understand is just could understand that somehow it had a knowing of being, it had a feeling 
it had a, a sense of being in state one or state two. And from just that simple thing, it grew up to be the larger consciousness system just through its own evolution. <clears throat> we didn't necessarily know what was outside of it. You see, the consciousness is kind of an internal thing. Now, perhaps if there were other things out there that interacted with it, then it would know. If there weren't other things out there that it interacted with, then it wouldn't know. And if there were things out there that interacted with, I don't know that it would tell me even if I asked, because that's not on my path of understanding what I'm doing here and now. In other words, growth path here is system-specific to this system. And knowing about other systems would just be intellectual curiosity without any real growth behind it. So whether I would get an answer or not, I don't know. So the fact that I have asked and haven't gotten answers, that either means that, you know, it doesn't want to tell me or it doesn't know. And I don't know which of those is the case. But, yes, I have asked, and no, I didn't get any direct answers, anything that I could, you know, anything that I could feel confident with. So you have to be very skeptical. So if I ask the larger conscious system a question like that and I get an answer, I have to be skeptical of that answer because it doesn't have to always be the truth, even if it is the system, and it uh, doesn't have to be the system. I, I could be coming out of my imagination. It could be coming from some other IUOC. Those are all sources of, of information that can come to me. And it would take, I'd have to have some more experience with it from other, in other ways and other sources in order for that, that skepticism to resolve itself. So like I had that same problems with things inside the systems, like t speaking with other, uh, non-physical sources, other beings. It's the same thing. You have to first start with the idea, okay, I got this information, but did I make that up? Did it come from some other IUOC? Did it come from the larger conscious system? Or is there just some guy out there that I'm talking to? All those have to stay as possibilities until you gather enough information to start dropping off the things that are less likely. And eventually, with enough experimentation, enough experience, you get to kind of you know narrow it down to, oh, when I'm talking to somebody like this, this is what's going on. But that's only after hundreds of hours of experiencing, hundreds of hours of, of, of um, researching, looking at the possibilities, trying to, you know, say what variables might still be loose. It's just a matter of any kind of science. It takes you a while to figure that thing out. But with this thing asking the larger conscious system, I can ask that, but it's hard for me to get to that subject from some other route or some other way to make sure that the answer I get is the right answer as opposed to something else. So partly it's because I'm a scientist and I always stay skeptical that these things are really hard to, to pin down when you have a single kind of a, a single source and you can't approach it from different directions to eliminate variables. So I don't feel confident enough that I would say that I got an answer that I would trust. All right. Thank you so much. Tom, excuse me, Tom, Adrian had another question, and it, and it ties in a little bit with this as far as interpretations and experiences and things. Um, people who've reached alternate states of mind speak about various, contacting various beings and entities. And in one particular case, something called a machine elf that transmits information. What can you tell uh, Adrian about this experience experiences like that experiences that we call out of body experiences experiences that uh, involve us in interacting with people from other reality systems um, other systems that are obviously non-physical some systems that maybe are physical like our system but just not our system some other system all of these tend to be, for the most part, single-player games that you're playing with the larger consciousness system. 
So if you go out and you meet, uh, what did you say, an elf machine? You meet something, whatever that is, and you deal with it, that think of it as a single-player game. You are trading data with the larger conscious system. The larger conscious system is sending you data, and in that data is this elf machine or whatever else it is you're interacting with, whatever else it is you're, you are experiencing. You're experiencing it because it's data being sent to you. You have to stop thinking of that you experience a thing because it's there. There is nothing that's there. Information is the only thing that's there. You experience a thing because you're getting data that you interpret as that thing. So then the question is, where is the data coming from and why are you getting it? Well, it's easier just say the data is coming from the larger consciousness system because then that takes in everything and that you're getting it because there's an opportunity for you to learn something. And that learning may not be an amazing fact about the, about, uh, you know, elf machines. It may be just learning how to quiet your mind, how to maintain a, a, uh, a good meditation state, how to focus on specific things, how to get in and out of these reality frames. So there's lots of things you might be learning that would be useful with that. So think of it as a single player game. There is purpose to the game. There is value in it, probably. Most times there is, if you can find it. But if there is no value in it, if you experience it and you've worked with it dozens of times, you find no value in it, then don't do it anymore. If that comes up, go elsewhere. Reject it. So again, the the decider is not, is it real, but is it valuable? Is it useful? Can I use that? Am I growing because of it? And if you are, then the source is irrelevant doesn't matter what the source is. The whole point of being here is you're growing up. So if it helps you grow up, then it's a good thing. Eric is next. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Hi, Eric. So my first question is on fears and instincts. Um, <clears throat> according to evolutionary psychology, many of the fears that we tend to have have been programmed inside our bodies as a result of biological evolution since those fears were helpful for our survival and reproduction. This includes fear of snakes, spiders, heights, fear of being rejected, and so on. This makes sense, but I have some difficulty reconciling this with MBT. So one question I have about it is that MBT talks about fear mostly in terms of it being an aspect of the IUOC. An IUOC with a high quality of consciousness will have almost no fear, whereas an IUOC with a low quality of consciousness will have lots of fear. How do we reconcile this with the idea that many of our fears belong to the avatar as a result of biological evolution? Well, we have instincts, and those instincts basically have been born out of our experience. That's why we have the instincts. We evolved with a set of experiences that were consistent enough that we began to program our DNA to be ready to deal with them. Okay, so that's part of the that's part of the way the rule set works. It's part of the way DNA works. So when we have experiences and those experiences save us or cause us harm, and that happens over and over and over again to many individuals of the species, then we start seeing these instincts develop at a species level they become human instincts or raccoon instincts or or whatever we get them at a at a species level after a while and yes they they uh sometimes give us fears maybe a fear about not eating something if you don't know what it is you know those pretty little purple berries on that bush you know just because they're pretty you kind of have an instinct that says, don't necessarily just grab them up and pop them in your mouth. That might not be a good idea. And that is just an instinct that you have that you carry from the experience of your forebears. Okay, so that is a, you know, that is a functional thing. Now, I say fears are always dysfunctional, but I should qualify that as in the long term. 
fears are always dysfunctional. In the long term, fears aren't necessary. Okay, so, or they're not, they're not as good as having no fear. No fear is better. No fear is, is optimal. Okay, and even with the berries, if you had no fear, but you had uh, understanding, then you'd look at those pretty berries and you'd say, I wonder if they're harmful or not. Well, let me do some experiments with them and see. You know, and maybe you'd uh, pull out your old chemistry kit and see if they had various kinds of poisons in them, or maybe you'd feed them to some laboratory mice and see how they fared with them. And then maybe you just eat one of them and wait for a week and see if anything happened. You see, you have, you'd have a way to approach the problem. Because instead of just saying, oh, I'm afraid of eating things I don't know of, walk away, forget it, never go back. Having understanding rather than the fear is better. So in the long term, it's better not to have the fear, but to have understanding. But if you don't have understanding, then the fear will keep you alive long enough to develop the understanding. So in that case, it's short term, but it's useful. Okay, the fear may keep you out of the woods when the grizzly bears are in, you know, in mating season and feeling territorial. And that's a good thing, but it'd be better if you didn't go into the woods just because you understood that that would be a foolish thing to do. Understanding is even, is better. It's always better. So in that sense, I say that fear is always dysfunctional. I mean it in the sense that, that fear as opposed to understanding is always dysfunctional. But fear can be useful in the short term if you don't have any understanding. Okay? So it's good when people see things they don't recognize, that they don't just grab a handful and pop them in their mouth, that they have some sense of that might be a dumb thing to do. They carry that innate fear. So in that way, for the, for those who are not informed, it's useful in the short term. But in the long term, it's much better to say, well, how do I find out whether or not these things are poisonous? Work on the problem, and if you find out they're not poisonous, wow, you've got a whole new food source that you didn't have before. That's a definite advantage. But you do it in such a way that you don't poison yourself in the process. So that's kind of how that works out. So instincts are there, and they're not all because of fear. They're just things that helped us succeed helped us survive and helped us procreate. And they helped us often enough that uh, we internalized them. And actually instincts don't take, you know, hundreds of thousands of years to develop. You can modify your genetics just in a single lifetime. You know, you can, you can uh, do things or have experiences that then you pass on to your offspring that weren't there before just because of your own experience in this lifetime. But the experience to, to do that, the experience that modifies your own genetics, has to be something rather dramatic or something that, you know, is pretty meaningful in a big way. You know, it's it's not going to be something trivial, like, uh, you know, the way you uh, hold your toothbrush or something. That's not going to have enough significance to work its way into a genetic change. But if it's something that you have a lot of, particularly feeling energy in, then indeed you may change your genetics. And if millions of other humans have those same kind of feelings, then you can actually change the species instincts as well, which is good. So we're not really stuck with our genes, with the idea that, well, we can't, this is how we feel because that's genetic and we're just stuck with that for the next, you know, 100 million years until we get over it. We can get over it more quickly than that. If we try, if we make a, an effort, if we think about it, then we can uh, take that 100 million year instinct and maybe change it in two or three decades or maybe a century. You know, it may not take that long to undo it and put in something else there. So does that uh, kind of answer your question about how those things, you know, are not really incompatible? It's just... Yeah, it, it does kind of solve it for me. Um, I, I've thought a bit about it myself, and I thought that, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I thought maybe um, instincts um, belong to the avatar, 
whereas fear is more a characteristic of the IOOC. So let's say my IOOC logs on to a male human being, then it comes with the instincts of being a male human included because those are in the avatar. Whereas if my IOC logged on to, let's say, a dog, well, now there's different instincts. So sure. would that would that make sense? Sure. That's, that's part of the rule set. That's the same thing I said when I said you change your genetic material. Those genes are part of the physical setup. That's a property of the rule set as it's describing biology of the avatar. So that avatar evolved and part of its evolution was to, you know, it was its genetic evolution. So yes, that, that is a, that's a rule set thing, right. which makes it a physical thing. So yes, those things go with the, with the avatar. So, and you have an avatar that uh, has a lot of variation in those instincts. You know, some dogs or some males you know, have a much stronger set of instincts than others. And all of that is just part of this natural variation that's in the system, you know, this randomness that's in the system. It varies. They're not all exactly the same. And if, if those who have a stronger sense of, let's say, that instinct, and if they more readily survive and procreate, then the species will have a, a stronger sense of that. But if they don't, if they uh, are much less able to survive and procreate, then you know that'll go away. Or if it's just somewhere in the middle, it doesn't really make a whole lot of difference about their survival or procreation. Then it just runs in maybe their family, but doesn't end up into a, in a species. You know, uh, it, it doesn't end up as a species function or a sexual function like male or female. So yes, yes, it's a it has to do with the rule set and the way our biology developed that we have these proclivities and instincts and ways of approaching problems. Those, those instincts were important, things that we can pass on. You can almost think of them as, um, you know, collective consciousness. You know, if we had done the same thing in the consciousness rather than in the, the biological field, it would be the analog is like collective consciousness. In the physical field, it's genes and, and uh you know, genetics, but it's a, it's a way we learn at a level other than intellectual. The thing that kind of triggered the question for me is that, um, I realized that many marketing techniques and even the media, they use our instincts in order to influence us to buy stuff or to read stuff. And I was asking myself, uh, would a lower entropy being be less, influenced by these sort of strategies and i thought well if the instincts come with the avatar then lowering uh, increasing your quality of consciousness won't necessarily make you less susceptible to these sort of techniques because you still have you may have a low quality of, a high quality of consciousness but you you still have the instincts that come with the avatar well there is there is some correlation there but it's not a one to one correlation yes you have you know many of these things will come with the avatar so if you are um you know in a in a male or female body say in a human then there are certain instincts that are going to be there and the quality of your consciousness doesn't erase them they're just there and you can <clears throat> you can struggle with them and try to ignore them but that is not as good as dealing with them, accepting them. So, for instance, you can uh, you can separate the sexes, say, and have uh, you know monks and nuns, and they're in separate buildings in separate part of the country, because that makes it easier for each one of them to not be distract not be distracted by their instincts. So you've just made that a simpler thing for them to do. But you're also going to limit their growth that way. You know, let them interact with each other and also learn how to master those instincts for the, you know, for their learning and for the better good of the whole. You know, it doesn't have those instincts don't have to be only applied in a self-centered way. 
they can be applied in a in a better way. So in that case, I think it's better to experience all there is to experience, you know, connect to all you are, accept wholly who you are, and then deal with that in a positive way. If you eliminate certain things like separating the sexes and the monks and nuns, then yes, you do make it easier. So you might say for a beginner, it's a little easier because there's less distraction, but you also limit how much they're going to grow because you've made it easier. And you grow by meeting challenges and by taking whatever comes to you and using it in a positive way that's not self-centered. So, yes, the body comes with instincts and you can have a very low entropy being and they should embrace that maleness or femaleness, either one, and be it. But be it ethically. Be it in a way that's, that is uh, good for other people and for themselves. You know, being in a way that's positive. So we, we, we shouldn't struggle against instincts or see them as a, this outside force that we need to overcome. We need to embrace who we are and what we are and all of those instincts and learn to apply them in a low entropy way, not ignore them or get rid of them. I think that's a much better viewpoint than trying to fight with them Ignore them and get rid of them. So, it, I guess it wouldn't be necessarily true then that, let's say, an, a very evolved being like a Buddha um, wouldn't be scared of, uh, wouldn't have a fear of spiders or snakes anymore. Like that. That's right. Well, you see, the thing is, let's say that's one of the things you in, you inherit. You know, maybe a, a parent or a grandparent in your line had a terrible experience with spiders and snakes in such a way that it actually changes genetic makeup. So now you have a tendency to be very skittish around these things. If you see them, you know, you, you're, you're frightened of them. More than the, than the average person is frightened of them. Well, this becomes then a challenge for you. If it's something that is causing fear, then you should start to look at it and pick it apart and say, well, why? Well, you couldn't come up with a reason. Nothing that you did or experienced necessarily have that problem, but I just feel this way. Well, is it dysfunctional? Does it make my life more difficult? There's some places I won't go. When all, when everybody else is walking through the woods together, I'm afraid to go out there because the snakes and spiders live out there. Okay, now so it's a problem. It's inhibiting what I can do. Well, now you could overcome it. You could say, well, I'm going to go out in the woods and maybe just go a little bit and come back. Maybe tomorrow I'll go a little bit further or maybe I'll read all about spiders and snakes and, you know, I'll learn about them, where they live and whether they're harmful or not and what do you do and I'll, I'll do all that so that I'm not afraid of them. Now that's a challenge in you exercising your consciousness to overcome a fear and that's a good thing. And somebody of very low entropy would want to do that. But now let's say they had something that was uh, an instinct, but it didn't have any effect on their life. It was just, you know, it, it was something irrelevant to anything in their life. Well, they may just ignore it because it isn't, it isn't causing any problems. Or they may, just knowing it's there, say, I want to get rid of that. I want to overcome that and just overcome it anyway, just because it's there, because that's what they do is get rid of fear. They don't like having that, that in their life. So yes, a low entropy person would be, would have less of these fears, but not just because they were low entropy. You know, it's not like the low entropy makes the fear go away. The low entropy is a result of the being being strong enough to apply himself to make the fear go away. And that lowers the entropy. So lowering your entropy doesn't get rid of the fear. Having a personality that, that won't tolerate the fear and getting rid of it makes the entropy lower. So low entropy beings would tend to be less fearful. Um, they have a big attitude toward death. They're not so worried that they're going to be bitten by a poisonous snake and die. Well, if that happens, that happens. They have a different attitude. So they're not so terrified of that. And what would happen is because you overcame it and said, I'm not going to be afraid of spiders and snakes, 
and you got rid of it to where you could walk through the woods like anybody else and it wasn't a problem, now your children maybe not carry that gene. You may have stopped that, that transfer of that, you know, fear from say your grandfather, you know, to your father, to you, and now you may not send it on to your sons or daughters because you got rid of it. You changed your genetic makeup. That gene to make you afraid of spiders and snakes is gone now because your intent got rid of it. As you got rid of it, that gene changed. So it's also our responsibility then to sort of distinguish functional instincts from dysfunctional instincts and try to overcome those that are dysfunctional uh, to our to, to system entropy, so to speak. Yes. Yes, and, and that's something that we all get faced with because things change. You know, what was really functional and a very helpful instinct 200,000 years ago may not apply anymore today. You know, it may become dysfunctional. So just because it's an instinct doesn't mean that it's always going to help you survive and procreate or grow up. You know, it may be something that's getting in your way, in which case then you overcoming that is a, is a good thing to do. So you don't want to be bullied or driven by your instincts, but you don't want to deny them. You see? So it's not one way or the other. It's like, oh, deny your instincts, take charge, you know, be your own person and don't be pushed around by your instincts. No, you they are you. You have to own them. You have to accept them. But as they appear to be dysfunctional or not useful, let's put it that way, if they're not useful, if you're not, you know, if it's not a good thing to have, then let them go. Get rid of them. And you just do that again with your intent to do that. So that's then how the whole process works together. And as you grow up and get rid of them, you're not going to pass as much along to your own progeny, which is good for them. You know, so our instincts do need to change some as our, as we change. And, you know, we have a lot of that going on today because our social situation has changed immensely in the last 300 years. You know, for the, you know, out of the 200,000, you know, there's like 197,000, you know, we're, uh, we're almost the same. You know, people living on the land, uh, you know, trying to grab what they could grab and hold on to it. <clears throat> and it was kind of a, a very fear-based society, a very ugly, very uh, violent place to live. And that didn't change until just a few centuries ago. Did that start to change in a significant way? But now we live in a totally different world. So there's a lot of old instincts kind of running around in us that just aren't as appropriate as they used to be. And as we find them to be dysfunctional, then we need to overcome them and let them go. And then when we do that, we actually change our, our, uh, our genes. We change our, you know, what we're going to pass on. Maybe all we'll do is change it a little bit, to just lessen it. You know, maybe somebody else, the next generation have to lessen it a little more, but, uh, we will, you know, we will work on that. So we have, some big changes in instincts. Most of those are in the, you know, the male-female relationship. And those instincts that drive that, they've changed tremendously because of the the change in our uh, social environment. So, yeah, I've, noticed, I've noticed many people use it as an excuse, like to say, okay, that behavior may be dysfunctional, but that's how we evolved. So, you know... And that sort of takes away their responsibility to then change yeah. those instincts. Got to own yourself. Yeah, you know, everything you are, you got to own it and take responsibility for it. And if it's dysfunctional, you need to fix it. Not in anybody else, but in yourself. Yes, absolutely. You know, blowing something off because, oh, it's not my fault. You know, that's just my instinct. That's just the way I am. No, it's, it's yours to deal with that. So stuff happens, yes. So we got 200 years of violent stuff happening, and now we need to deal with that because we're in an environment now where we can deal with it because the environment's not like that anymore. So now's the time to to uh, kind of let go 
of that sense of scarcity. Let go of that sense of being uh, vulnerable. You know, let go of that sense of I got to take care of number one. You know, it's me against the world. You know, we have to let go of that because that's not functional anymore. It may have been functional, you know, 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago. That may have been the very attitude that kept you alive. But now, not so much. It's getting in the way now. You see, so there are things that we have to change about ourselves. And it's not like, well, that's the way I am. Too bad. You, know, you gotta, you gotta take responsibility for who you are and what you are and own it. And as you do that, then of course your entropy will decrease because those kinds of thoughts and ideas aren't about self as much as about other. They're not dysfunctional because of yourself. They're dysfunctional because of what they do to your relationships, you know, to other people. It's your connections to other people is where the dysfunction comes from. You can live by yourself in a, in a cave with nobody else around and be just as dysfunctional as you want. Personally, you know, you can be a, you know, a fascist, uh, whatever, as long as you just live in there by yourself. And if there's nothing else there for you to interact with, then, uh, Nobody notices how dysfunctional you are, and you don't notice either. It's only until you get out and, and have to deal with relationships that uh, that kind of dysfunction starts to show itself. Okay, well, that uh, that pretty much covers it. Thank you very much for clearing that up. Yeah, you're welcome. Tom, I'm going to read a question from the MBT4, because Frank, who's next with his questions, has uh, an interesting addition to the question that he will uh, follow up with. Uh, the question is from Linus on the calculation of a virtual reality. I listened to Tom's previous fireside chat where he again talked about the virtual brain and how it's only rendered when observed. That made me think about other internal organs. Does that mean the blood in our veins is virtual, our heart? If I continue this line of thought, that it must be so. In that case, how do processes happen in unseen virtual systems? Is it merely a game of probability, meaning if I smoke for 20 years, then the probability for getting lung cancer increases, even though there aren't really any lungs unless observed? How does the human body run on systems that are only really there when observed? This can also be extrapolated to Processes and other unseen components of the virtual reality. A car engine is stalling, a sink getting clogged. How does the LCS compute probabilities and components of the simulation that are not actually observed and rendered? Um, I think he answered it, he answered it earlier on, um, when he said, uh, something about, is this just, uh, un uh, what did he say? Um, I, I have this question, so I'm able to follow it. So I won't lose the parts of this one like I do those uh, those 20 part questions that are just verbalized and I don't have anything to look at. So this one I can hang on to. Um, yes, it is just probability. It's the system is run on probability. So let's talk about that that lung. So here we are, and we are all sitting somewhere in front of a little TV camera and a microphone so that we're here <coughs> and we're breathing. And assumably we're breathing in oxygen. The oxygen is taken into our lungs. It gets transferred to hemoglobin. The hemoglobin runs it around through our circulatory system to the cells. The cells get oxygen, which they need for metabolism and our body continues to function and we continue to sit here. The system has no need for rendering oxygen because none of us are measuring oxygen. So what, why do we not fall over if there's systems not rendering oxygen? Well, because it's probabilistic. Because of the number of trees we have, the algae in the ocean, um, you know, whatever, there's a certain probability of what the oxygen content of our air is. And will it be satisfactory enough for our biology, according to the rule set, to breathe it? And if the answer to that is yes, then that's all the system needs to know. We can just keep on functioning and the system never has to render any oxygen because the probability is that there's plenty of oxygen. Now there are little, uh, you know, 
possibilities, like all the oxygen in the room I'm in here could suddenly all just end up in one corner, you know, uh, by the ceiling, the far corner over here by the ceiling. Maybe all the oxygen goes there, and all I get is nitrogen down here. Well, that's possible, and I've seen the calculation and probability. It's like ten to the, you know, to the uh, uh, minus twenty-fifth uh, power or twenty-eighth power or something like that. It's very unlikely, but that's a possibility. You see, so in any case, it's the it's the, the idea that reality comes out of this this concept of taking a random draw from a probability distribution of the possibilities. So we don't have to have oxygen. We don't have to have intestines. We don't have to have a brain. We don't need any of that to be rendered unless somebody is looking at it. So what about somebody 20 years later after smoking gets lung cancer? Well, according to the rule set, the particles in the cigarette smoke irritate the lung and if you irritate the lung in that way, the probability of cancer developing in that lung goes up. Okay, so what does that mean? So if you're a person and you've been smoking um, for 20 or 30 years, then what's the probability that you're going to have lung cancer? Well, it was maybe if you didn't smoke, it was maybe, uh, you know, one in a thousand. If you smoke for 20 years, it's maybe one in 10 or one in five. You see, it goes up a lot. So then you may get that cough. And because you got that cough, you know, you may go in and get a, a somebody to do a, a CAT scan of your lungs and, oh, no, there it is. They find tumors. Well, when they made that measurement, what was the probability that there'd be a tumor in your lung? Okay, now, what if you never got a CAT scan and you don't know? Well, there's a certain probability just because that's attached to you and you, the things that you've done and who you are and what your biology is like, all of those things, that just attaches to you as an individual and gives you certain probabilities of things. That has to do sometimes with your genetics. Sometimes it's it's only your environment. You work in a building, uh, you know, doing renovation. You find out that all the ceiling tiles had asbestos in them. Well, now your probability of getting lung cancer from that is going to, you know, make it more likely that you're going to have lung cancer as opposed to if you'd never worked in that building. So the system can just keep track of this with an individual. So throughout your career, you smoked, you worked uh, with asbestos, you did this, you did that, and all of that adds up. So now the system has an overall probability of you getting lung cancer. And if that is, you know, if that's appreciable, then that percentage of the people who have done that will end up getting lung cancer because that's just tracking the probability for an individual. Now, sometimes... The system doesn't have to track it for individuals. We're all here. It only, it doesn't have to go and figure out for each one of us that there's probably oxygen. It can just do that in mass and you can say, all right, everybody that's alive now walking around the world has enough oxygen. There aren't people anywhere just falling over dead for a lack of oxygen in the air that they're breathing. So that's simple. That's just one uh, probability calculation and it covers everyone. But if we were doing something else, if we were doing something that uh, maybe down in a coal mine where there might be uh, methane gas or something replacing the oxygen, so we'd start breathing that and there wouldn't be much oxygen, well, now the probabilities change for us as an individual. So the system just keeps up with us, our experience, our probabilities, and it, uh, you know, stuff happens to us based on our based on the rule set and based on the things we've done. So, yes, it's just probability for the most part. It does not have to calculate all the in-between states. You see, there's a lot of in-between states, let's say, the, in the oxygen we breathe. Well, there, you know, but it doesn't have to calculate the amount of carbon absorption and, and getting, you know, letting oxygen go of every leaf on every tree and on every 
piece of plankton and on everything that generates oxygen, it doesn't have to go work with all that calculation. It can just back out to a general calculation and says, well, there's enough. So nobody's just going to fall over for lack of oxygen unless there's some other reason for it. So some places it can do general calculations. That saves it a lot of trouble. Sometimes it has to do individual calculations for individual people with individual circumstances. It does that too. But see, it has to do these calculations anyway. Remember, it was a, you are an avatar. It had to calculate you, the avatar, uh, working in that building with the asbestos dust, you know, up in the ceiling. You had to crawl around up there to follow wires or something, and you didn't know it was asbestos dust. But yes, there was a calculated avatar crawling around in that ceiling dust, and it had to, it had to create all of that. So it knows where you've been and what you've done and what the probabilities are and how it might affect your biology. That's just rule set stuff. So that's how that, that's how that works. It, uh, it doesn't have to calculate all the in-between states to get from, you know, from where you were to where you are now. It just needs to keep track of all the probabilities as you accumulate them. Okay, Tom, thank you. Uh, Frank, you had an addition to that question. Would you like to um, present that? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom. Um, so I think, uh, and I can only guess uh, what the uh, the previous person who asked the question, who posted the question, uh, understood. But for me, um, I think part of the difficulty in understanding that is that it's okay to look at oxygen, for example, in isolation. So that's that's one criterion and or one parameter, and it's easy to see how the system would make a probability distribution and then uh, just a random draw. But when it comes to, for example, the human body, it's so complex and so interlinked, everything that happens there. Um, for example, if I eat food, then I, I swallow it, and from that moment on, okay, it, the food no longer needs to be rendered uh, in terms of visual data because I don't see it anymore, but I feel it. And so all the organs that are not visible have to be somehow, have to come into the calculation in a different way. So now it's about the volume of food. What food is it? Do I feel bloated? Do I feel full? So all, and, and you know, if, if then my, my stomach is full, then that presses against other organs that do not have to be rendered visually, but in another way, And so in a complex system like the body, there seem to be so many factors at play that then you wonder, isn't that almost as complicated as uh, calculating everything from a particle level up? Well, probably okay. it isn't, as you will yeah. tell me now, but uh, I think that's no. part of the people struggling um, with, the, with the complexity yeah. of all this. Yes. Now, when you, the virtual reality computes, you know, for everything you do, all the consequences are computed. So if you eat food, then the consequences of that are computed. So the consequences of your, of your actions. So let's say you eat food that is unhealthy, but you have to eat that food for 20 years before the unhealthy effects occur. Well, all those consequences, or you eat food, but it doesn't have any vitamin C in it. Well, the consequences are you get scurvy. So the consequences to your actions in terms of probability only have to be computed at the detailed level once. Well, not exactly once, but, you know, not all the time, not for every instance. So you save a lot of computation by saying, okay, here's a human body of a particular, let's say, between 30 and 40, and here's the consequences of doing these kinds of things to it and the probability of those consequences. All right, now you may use that same set of probabilities on 20 million people who are in that age group and maybe all of the same something or other, you know, all this or that categories. So you break, you would break into as large a categories as you can. You do the calculations at the rule set level to find consequences because yes, it is very detailed. You know, what's going on down there have to do with the efficiency of the bacteria that are, you know, breaking things down and, and the chemical factories going on, uh, 
you know, making insulin and all that stuff. But you only have to do that a few times to where you can generate probability that applies to large segments. Now, it may not apply to everybody because there are a lot of distances, but let's say males between, uh, you know, 25 and 30. That may, in Western culture, perhaps, because Western culture has a very similar diet, you know, or in Germany or in the United States because we have different diets down to that level. So it'll break it down, but when it breaks it down, it's got millions of people that fall in those categories. And it may indeed have to calculate from the, from the bottom up, if you will, at the rule set, what all the consequences are because it's a very detailed problem. But then it can apply those statistics to lots and lots of people over lots and lots of years. Now, eventually, things will change. New kind of food groups or new foods come in and new things to swallow happen. And some calculations will have to be redone. So the system has to update, but no more than it has to. And depends on the detail to which we're we're looking. Like if it's just, is there enough oxygen to breathe? Well, you don't need any detail. You just need to once calculate, you know, okay, as long as we have this much of that and this much of these other things, these are the main producers of oxygen. And if they don't, if they go below a certain level, I want a red light to come on and tell me that there's going to be a problem because now I'm going to have to start calculating in detail. But until that time, I can just calculate at a very high level. So you can do those sorts of things as well. So the system has to keep updating. But the, the thing is, it's so much more efficient than calculating every instance of everything for everybody. So everybody's intestines and how they absorb food, you know, all seven and a half billion of us have to be calculated from the ground up, from, you know, our elementary particles, you know, up to bacteria. That's just way too much. But if I can represent that in large populations with statistics, now I can just take random draws to see what happens. It's just a random draw. Okay, you're in this, you're in this group called, uh, white males, you know, between what, 40 and 60 or something and in Germany. And that's your group. And I know the things, you know, the system knows the things you've done. You know, the, it's, it's had to, it's had to, uh, 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 render you all the things you did and all whatever. So it, it's got a real, you know, it's got all the detailed history on what you did. It had to render the dust that was in that ceiling when you crawled around in there. Mm-hmm. Had to render all that stuff. It had to render what the, you know, it had to know what the dust was and what it, what it came from and what the various sources of dust were. But it only has to render that once. And everybody that crawled around up in there is in that same boat. And people who crawled around in attics on the other side of the ocean well, they can use the same calculations for them too, probably. So it's got that sort of a, of a benefit that it, it, it does what it has to do as far as calculation and continuing to keep up with things, but it works it up to the highest level possible. Now, by high level, I'm talking in terms of simulation. You know, the, la- the less detail is what I mean by higher level. So it works it up to the, to the minimum amount of detail required to keep the simulation running the way it needs to run. So if you're in that group and you go, you know, and you have a, a, a an ache in your stomach, well, why do you have an ache in your stomach? Because there's some probability that you will. And it's does a, the system then, you know, every delta T, it makes a, a random draw from, from all the functioning of my body parts, you know. So the next delta T, um, lungs still okay, stomach still okay. Will there be uh, prostate cancer? Yeah. Yes, no. I mean... Uh... It can do that, but it won't do it every delta T. It only will do it to the degree of resolution that's necessary. So let's say your biological changes are only going to change such that uh, instead of every delta T, it does it every six months or every month or every week or every hour. You know, it depends on what the system is. So other than that, it doesn't make that test because... Whether or not, you know, you have this ailment or that isn't something that it has to worry about delta T by delta T. So for you, it's maybe, you know, every year it may, there may be random draws on, uh, you know, the state of your health based on what you eat and, and the rule set and all the statistics that it's already compiled on every human that's ever been modeled here 
you know, for the last 200,000 years, it's got lots and lots of data about how humans work. Well, now we eat things differently. We have different kinds of, you know, processed food that they didn't eat 100, you know, thousand years ago. Well, we do now. So those had to be run as far as the details had to compute all that. But once it computes it for people in general, those functions that change, if they change second by second, then it has to compute it every second. Well, there's lots and lots of delta T's in a second. But if it only changes weekly or monthly, then that's all that's all computed weekly or monthly. So it doesn't do any more than it has to to present a virtual reality that is credible, that people believe. That's the only, you know, that's its, that's its criteria. It has to make a virtual reality that's credible, that's believable. Otherwise, it's not a good simulation. And it won't do any more calculation than necessary, and it won't go to any depth of resolution unless it's necessary, you know, to solve the problem it has to solve. So, yeah, your health problems, are probably, uh, you know, what, no more than a day-by-day, day, probably more like a month-by-month month sort of thing. And at that point, yes, they say, well, what's the probability of prostate cancer? What's the probability of this? And they may look at your genetics because it rendered all of your forebears too. And it knows what's in your genetics. It knows what was pro- It knows what was probably there. It can go back, and if it doesn't know, then it can just make something up that it probably could have been that way, and that's what you go forward with. So as far as my health is concerned, I'm happy for the system to go, go to five-year cycles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the, the question I originally had as a follow-up to this one uh, was, um, and that also has to do with credibility. You know, uh, you once, I think, on the forum somewhere, you gave the example of an explorer coming to an uninhabited island. Mm-hmm. It gets a random situation, or he, he gets a random situation rendered, then leaves, and then comes back after six months. So what mm-hmm. will the system render to him if there was no other player on the island? So random draw from the probability distribution of what could have happened in those six months. But then I'm wondering, all the things that could have happened during those six months, I mean, to, in order to seriously calculate that, um, don't you, doesn't the system have to do almost as much calculation as it would have to do when uh, rendering the entire island live to participating players. No, because it doesn't. It's it not doesn't, like the, player, the, the explorer would come back after six months and say, what? what? That's everything that w- w- happened during six months? No, there must have been more. <laughs> right. See, the player doesn't require a whole lot of, of uh, accuracy because the player wasn't there. He doesn't know what might have happened in six months. So the system has a lot of leeway and what it produces. And it only has to produce something that's credible, that doesn't break two things. And actually, it's all just one thing. It doesn't break the rule set. You know, it can't do something that's impossible. It has, And you can also eke out that it can't do something that is inconsistent. You know, you, he can't come back and find a big, you know, 10,000-foot volcano in the middle of the island that's been there for 100 years when he was just there and it wasn't there. That would be inconsistent. So it it has to be consistent and it has to be within the rule set. But other than that, it can put anything in there at once. And it's okay. So it doesn't need any more resolution than that. Now, what it will do is because there are people, say, in that around that area, say, within hundreds or 500 miles or 1,000 miles or 10,000 miles of that area, Island, there have been other people and these other people have been aware of the weather and have been aware of the storms that went through. So wherever the people were anywhere on the planet that maybe was in a direction that storms typically come from, you know, they typically move from what northwest to southeast. This is kind of the way the weather patterns run across the, the globe. And anything that was then northwest would have been looked at, well, what was over there? Well, you know, a thousand miles away, there was population over there from this island that nobody had ever been to before except this one guy. And because they had real bad storms and they had about this and that and had to render all of that because there was a bunch of people over there experiencing it, then how would that affect this area? So it would have that kind of information because it's not just in a vacuum. It's got a lot of other stuff. And the population that we have here today 
you know, it's not a problem at all. There's always, there's somebody almost everywhere, uh, today that it, it knows a lot of the things and can calculate the probabilities. It doesn't have to do it from scratch. But in that case, because this guy's coming back and he wouldn't have any idea whether there was a hundred storms or one storm, he wouldn't know. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to produce it to any higher resolution than what that guy would notice. It's all for his benefit. As long as it doesn't, it's, it doesn't break the rule set and it isn't inconsistent with what he mm. saw before. Those so are the now, only two rules. So it doesn't really matter what it puts in there. It mm. can do, it can do a very coarse grain set of probabilities based on surrounding stuff and come up with it. You know, it's very coarse and take a random draw from that coarse thing. And there it is. And that'll work just fine. Thank you. Is I it, think those of us who are not programmers, uh, We don't appreciate probably the powers of uh, deep learning technology that is currently being developed. I think the system will probably use a lot of, I mean, I really don't know how it works, but I, I assume that uh, there are much more intelligent ways for the system to handle all these probabilities than, you know, I'm, I'm aware of. And we're also probably underestimating the amount of data it can handle. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Before I ask another question, I just wanted to make a quick comment also on what Caroline said because um, about uh, dealing with narcissistic people because I remembered um, like from my own experience, uh, I had to deal with people who were, well, maybe not narcissistic, but very ego-centered and would engage in an awful lot of conversation beyond anything that's reasonable, you know, at work as small talk. And... Um, I had the feeling that was maybe based on the fear of not being likable. So they would mm -hmm. engage in lots of conversations to somehow make sure that you think they like you. And so you behave in a way that makes them feel you like them. And then I was struggling because I thought, okay, if, if I engage this, then, uh, then I kind of uh, encourage them to do more of that. And we end up in mm -hmm. endless talks. But if I kind of cut them short every time, then they feel less, even less likable and will try to talk even more to me. Uh, and, you know, because they think that's the way. So I thought no matter what I do, uh, I <laughs> encourage the same bad behavior uh, all the same. So the solution I came up with was limited in terms of duration, but during that time being really nice and communicating, you know, I, I do like you but we really have to stop here. So I just wanted to interject that um, yeah. just in case it's, it's useful for anyone uh, dealing with the same issue. Yes. I don't know if that's the perfect solution. Yeah, well, that is probably the best solution in as much as when, you, when he calls you over to talk, that you go talk, and when, you, when he talks, instead of standing there looking out the window or something else, you know, eye contact, be with him, you know, present, listen, listen very carefully. But then after a minute or two, say, well, I've got work I've got to get done. I'm, uh, it's all very interesting, but you know, I need to go get some work done. And he'll understand that. And then you go. So the thing is in your quandary, you know, if, if you are, if you say, you know, if you were to, to not be nice like that and just said, you know, you talk too much, you know, people have work to do here. You need to, you need to get a life, get your work done, not, not uh, disturb everyone then yes, you would just add to his problem. But that isn't, that's not necessarily a bad thing because if it, if he has to deal with that, then he may say, yeah, I do. I've got this compulsion to talk to everybody. I need to, I need to investigate that. I need to work on that. So you see, you don't want to be an enabler at the same, and, and you don't also want to be harsh. It depends on them, where they are. Are they ready? to take that and say, you know, yeah, I have this compulsion and I need to do something about that. Or are they just going to get angry? And because anger is the way they deal with feeling more fear because you obviously don't like them and don't think they're doing what they should do. So if you think it's going to hurt them, then you don't do that. If you think it might help them, then you give them a little nudge, just a little bit that you can back up from quickly if you need to and see if it helps. You know, mm -hmm. something, just some comment or some small thing. But if it doesn't, if they kind of, you know, get their back up about it, then you let it go. 
So it's, that's how you have to deal with things like that. There is no way, oh, here's the way you always deal with it. You know, do this, this, and this. It just depends on the individual, where they are. If they're ready to grow, a little push is good. Mm-hmm. If they're not ready to grow, a little push will just make them worse. And you have to come to that understanding of whether or not they're ready to grow. And you may do that just by probing a little bit in that talk. You know, you just, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're just too busy really to even care. You know, it's not your problem. You know, but uh, if you do have time, if you're not, if you have enough time at work, then it might be part of your problem to see if there isn't something. And maybe not then when he's talking to you, but maybe on the way out to the car after work. Mm-hmm. You know, to say something that uh, would be encouraging, but at the same time give him some little insight into into uh whatever you know tell me about yourself that's a good way to tell people about themselves is by talk about other people you know sometimes i feel almost driven to you know hang out at the water cooler and uh talk with people it just seems like i just need this break you ever feel that way you know where you're, you're talking about yourself you see things like that rather than you know i think you have a problem <laughs> that's not a good way to start it yeah you okay. start it in some other way <laughs>